Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. Sa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa So we'll just start with that. <laughs> and I was remembering, actually, the beginning of coming up to this uh, retreat. I was remembering driving up uh, Sir Francis Drake and passing the high school there and seeing some signs for summer camps, like summer camps of basketball and soccer and swimming. And uh, sometimes in California, I forget what season it is. Um, because it's like relatively even here. And I thought, oh, it's summer. And I was remembering summer camps with some fondness. And I was thinking, oh, it'd be kind of fun to do as an adult to go to some place for a week and learn something new. <laughs> and then it occurred to me, <laughs> that's what we're doing here. So I was like, oh, I'm driving up to the summer camp of Metta. <laughs> so uh, all of you are on this summer camp of Metta. And I'd like to talk to you a little bit about why it's the best summer camp you could join. <laughs> and why actually the effects that are possible from the summer camp of Metta are profound ones that can affect the rest of your life. So what we're doing here is a different meditation practice. It's a very specific meditation practice that's around the cultivation of this wholesome state of heart and mind, that we call metta. So we've translated this different ways as uh, loving kindness, as friendliness, as goodwill, uh, unconditional regard, many different translations of it. And it definitely is a different practice, technically, and in what we're aiming for, than what those of you who have come to Spirit Rock for Vipassana retreats uh, will be used to. So hopefully it's clear to everyone that what we're doing this week is all metta all the time. Uh, you probably picked that up in, even if somehow you missed that uh, in the initial uh, part. And we did, I looked back because we did actually try to title the description um, accurately. It's called July Metta Retreat. Right? <laughs> so it really is going to be all metta this week. Right? Uh, so it's a different practice, but it's actually such a beautiful thing to come to the summer camp of loving-kindness. You know, I remember when I was first doing these practices um, when I was quite young, and I was telling a friend of mine about them. And I was like 20, 21, and she was like, so what do you do on these retreats, really? And so I was telling her about a metta retreat, and it's like, oh, so you know, we're going to go there and uh, generate good wishes for ourselves and for other people. And she was like, and what else are you going to do? That? You know? I was like, no, and that's it. So we'll sit there and we'll do that uh, while we're sitting, and then we'll do that when we're walking, and then while we're sitting, and while we're eating. And 
She was kind of, we were quite incredible, so I remember. She was like, no, really? Yeah. I was like, yes. And she's actually someone who has a really good heart, like very strong paramis, I would say. So she was, she actually just started laughing with delight, and she was like, that's so great that people do that. <laughs> like, how many people are doing this together? And I said, oh, about 100 people are doing this together at the same time. And she was like, that's amazing. That's so great. That's, that's like ridiculous that people do that, but it's so beautiful, you know. She herself actually went on to do retreats uh, later on. She was so moved just by the idea of the possibility of that. So in case you've lost track of that, it's actually such a beautiful thing that we're doing here together. You know? It's such a rare and precious thing and a stunningly beautiful thing for a group of people to be doing together. You know, it still brings tears to my eyes 25 years later that we're doing this here. So thank you for that practice. And I want to share with you a little, both from kind of the analytical side and also the mystical side, what we're up to and what are some of the possibilities. So meditation is both an art and a science, you could say. You know, there's a kind of technical side to it and techniques, and now more and more there's um, explanations from neuroscience about what's happening in the brain. And then there's kind of the mystical, artistic, creative side of it as well. And some of you might relate more or less to one or the other side. Some people might relate to both. Uh, whatever you're in is, is good. So first off, you know, where does this stand in the teachings of the Dharma? You know, what's the connection between this and what the Buddha taught? So actually this metta practice and the cultivation of loving kindness as a quality of heart and mind is there in many different aspects of the Eightfold Path. And you could say it could be seen as a primary practice also in uprooting one of the three roots that are called often the three poisons, so greed, hatred, and delusion. So from one perspective, our insight practice, Vipassana, is seeing clearly into the nature of things, you know, that's wisdom, so that's uprooting delusion. And of course, along the way, we're developing the other wholesome qualities, right? And uprooting greed, the practices of generosity and renunciation are directly going at greed. And then this metta practice is going head-on at hatred, at aversion, uprooting that unwholesome tendency. So you could see it within that framework of those three poisons, if you will. Also within the Eightfold Path, it's there throughout So Eightfold Path is divided into different sections, one of which is the section about uh, sila, so about wise action, about the precepts, about speech, and also about livelihood. So how we spend our our life, what job we have, and what we habitually do as actions within that livelihood. And all of those, uh, the trainings that we have within the precepts that we took in the beginning, the dreams around speech and livelihood are all rooted in an understanding that comes from the intention of metta. So if we're established in a sense of connection with others, a sense of kindness, then we naturally will act in these ways that are aligned with the precepts, you know, that are aligned with what is wholesome. It also is an aspect of the Eightfold Path from right or wise intention. So there's three uh, different ones that are spoken of in that. So developing compassion, 
developing renunciation and then developing uh, goodwill, metta. So it's directly in there as an aspect. And then it is very squarely there in the factor of wise effort. So wise effort, uh, and if, if you haven't heard these before, it's okay. If this, I'm trying to place it in context for people who might have before, so you don't have to try and remember all this at all. Uh, but the Buddha's definition of wise effort in the Eightfold Path was, is to understand when wholesome states arise, basically to know that they're there, and then to cultivate them along. Right? So both understanding how to develop and to maintain wholesome states, such as metta, such as generosity, such as compassion. And then to understand when an unwholesome state has arisen. So hatred or revenge or jealousy. And to abandon that if you can. And then to understand what the causes are for that and to avoid those. So those are the the four aspects of wise effort. So two for the wholesome, to cultivate and to maintain. And then for the unwholesome, uh, to restrain when it has arisen and to abandon the causes of that. And even I would say that there's some aspect of mindfulness that's required for metta practice. It's not the main event going on, but we're actually tuning into when there's metta present. We're actually developing the ability to know that. So in some ways there's a mindfulness of mind, that aspect of the uh, foundations of mindfulness that's being cultivated. So really we're getting to know our minds and hearts really well in this summer camp. You know, that's what it's all about, is like understanding all the different flavors of the heart as they emerge. We're intentionally cultivating that of metta, but as I know you have found out, as we try to do that, a lot that is not metta comes up. (laughs) So both in a slightly not metta way, you know, it's kind of like that, but there's little conditions, little side angles, you know, Sharda was talking about sort of the near enemies. And then sometimes it's so obvious it's not metta. It's like completely opposite Right, rage, hatred, you know, even towards your beloved benefactor or self. Right? So we can actually learn from all of that, I would say. You know, it all is part of the territory. It's both part of the process of purification, you know, of allowing all of that to emerge, see it, unwind, and also part of our learning and sort of, you know, tuning into what is this metta? Like, what is this in our heart, our body, our mind? And with meditation practice, you're learning this experientially. You know, so not from reading books, uh, not from memorizing things, uh, but from actually soaking in it yourself. You know, actually kind of like tuning into it. You know, there's a kind of tuning fork of metta. You're tuning yourself more and more to that. And yeah, the pitch varies here and there, but you know, tuning in, getting, getting the system trued up, if you will, to this sense of loving kindness. So there's also an aspect that this practice deals with which um, is related to karma. So part of the, the focus that Buddha has on intention and effort and understanding wholesome, unwholesome different states is really an understanding of cause and effect. You know, that the intentions with which we speak and act uh, have effects. So both they actually do train our minds and our hearts more and more in that way, 
but also they have effects on ourselves and others in the moment and in the future. So this is a really important place for us to pay attention. So it's kind of like, you know, there's, there's all these different aspects of life we can pay attention to. You know, there's the physical world, uh, there's how much money you have in your bank account, uh, there's aspects of sound you can pay attention to. So meanwhile, through all of the different things that you're going through and all of the different kind of scorecards that you keep at different times in your life, there emerges actually this constant stream that's going on, which is about the states of mind that are arising and what we're cultivating in our lives. And the secret is that even though here in the summer camp of metta, we are intentionally focusing on cultivating metta, actually everybody is in their own camp cultivating something or another all the time. Yeah? We're always cultivating something. We're always planting the seeds and we're always watering them. And so it's extremely important to pay attention to what is it that we are cultivating. You know, what, what is this garden that we're growing in our mind? So you can see this in so many different ways. Uh, recently I was stuck on uh, 101, which many of you from Northern California will relate to this. Uh, this uh, driving down 101 from here to the city and there was a moment, you know, almost out of Marin, but not quite to the bridge, when there was a complete standstill. Yeah. It happens. Right? So we're sitting there for 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes, complete standstill, like no, not really any motion. Um, so I was trying to check on my, my little app, see if I figure out what's happening, and I couldn't. So I was like, oh, I'll talk to people around me, because we're all completely stuck there, you know. So I put down the window on this side, and uh, you know, the next car I was like, "Hey, do you and do you guys know?" And they're like, rah, rah. <laughs> <You> know? <laughs> they were like, they were like enraged, you know. <laughs> they were so angry that they were stuck in traffic, and uh, you know, I don't think they actually thought it was my fault, but it was sort of as if, you know, <laughs> I was like, oh, "Thank you." <laughs> so then I was like, "Let me try this side." <laughs> So I put down the window on this side and there was a different car and there was this family in there, like two older parents and adult children. And I was like, hey, do you know what's happening? And they were like, yeah, I don't know. Like, uh, it seems like nothing's moving. You know, so we actually had some decent conversation and then they, a little bit later, we started creeping inch, 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 inch. And then a little while later, they came back to the window and they were like, oh, there's a, been a collision on the bridge and um, it's just clearing up now. And I was like, oh, where'd you hear that? On this radio station, you know, that was good. So it was so interesting to see, like, it's like each car is its own little world, you know? <laughs> and like you put down the window, like, whoa, close up, you know? <laughs> so, you know? And uh, it's just like the mind, you know, revealing itself in these different uh, forms. And as many cars as there are, there probably are different states, you know, past another car which seemed like people are like fighting with each other, another one, like people are in love, another one, you know, it's like, all these different things happening and we're all stuck on 101 there. And, um, you know, the people who were mad about it, like it wasn't helping them any. Like they were not moving any faster than <laughs> I was or these other people were or the people eating snacks or, you know, in love or whatever, you know. So, but we don't know. It's like, oh, we can't actually control the traffic, but is it possible then to have any effect in the mind? You know, or are we just subject to these different states that are coming through? So, you know, we put down the window and I talked to these guys, it was sort of like there was possession happening, you know. 
uh, and I mean, this is what happens when we're like enraged or, you know, filled with jealousy. It's like we're possessed, right? Like that state completely inhabits us and we say things we regret and we're kind of like spewing energy all over the place. You know, it's, uh, it's not a pretty sight and we're not always aware in the moment what that looks like uh, when we're doing that. But it's not like a film that we would like to see repeated or, you know, <laughs> shown at our funeral or anything like that. Like, you know, uh, but it's good to see that and be like, oh, look, this is a possibility. You know, there are these different possibilities. And most people don't know, like, that there is a possibility of actually affecting that stream of the mind, you know. And this is the, the brilliance of these teachings and of the Dharma and uh, the Buddhas, giving tools to be able to do that. You know, and it's great that like all of us have found our way t- to uh, connecting with these tools, and then that you found your way to dedicating a week to cultivating that. Right? So that's why in this this summer camp, you know, I thought oh, I did all these different summer camps in my life, like soccer and you know, lacrosse and tennis and things. And you know, now at this point in my life, I don't do those activities that often, but. The things that you learn in the summer camp of the mind will affect your mind from now until your death. You know, these, this will benefit you for the rest of your lives and everyone you meet and everyone you talk to when you're stuck in traffic. And, you know, uh, so it's a, it's a beautiful thing. But now as I was, I was reflecting on this, um, you know, summer camp and I was kind of wistfully thinking about it, I started reflecting again and I was like, maybe I'm actually idealizing this. You know, because when I went to summer camp... It's actually kind of stressful a little bit, you know. You go to a new situation and you have to figure out, like, who's going to be your friend there and who's going to eat lunch with you and, you know, if you're good at the sport or not or, you know, and then their cliques form. And uh, So it made me realize, like, oh, I'm a bit idealizing maybe the, the summer camp experience. It wasn't necessarily, like, all that perfect each time, right? But it's interesting to reflect on that because... You can see even with, with metta, you know, what we're basically doing is going through this sort of mandala of different people that reflects this mandala that we create and that gets recreated in every situation that we land in. So we have the people who are like the benefactors who we've been working with now, right? We have ourself in the middle, of course, the star, right? Then we have benefactor, mentor, people we love, then we're going to move on to a friend, you know, people who we like, maybe a little bit mixed relationship. Then there's a huge billions of people in the realm of neutral people, so people we don't really pay attention to that much. You know. And then kind of in the outskirts is the difficult people, so the people who uh, we find uh, annoying or who are our enemy in some way or who are angry at. You know. Initially, I think there's kind of a fold in that mandala where... It, there's a great intimacy with the enemy too. You know, so in some way they're as close as the intimate one, as the benefactor, right? Like, uh, even though we don't want to admit it, but we sometimes can think of them even as much too. Right? So we have this, this kind of overlay that's there and notice how as we go through life in these different situations, it recreates itself. You know, like the mandala repopulates itself. So meaning like even here on this retreat, possibly, this, each person's mandala has already repopulated itself. So it's like there's people in the retreat who you like, even though you haven't talked to them. There's people in the retreat you don't like, even though you haven't talked to them. 
right? <laughs> There's a lot of people we're not paying attention to. The teachers might get placed on the mandala, or maybe we have our own separate one, you know, that we get placed in, like the ones you like, the ones you don't like, right? Um, and this happens over and over in every situation that we land in, you know. So this happens in summer camp, this happens in first grade, this happens in middle school, this happens when you take on a new job, this happens in a new neighborhood you move to, you know, over and over and over again. So here too is the uh, helpful Dharma teaching of why this is important for us to cultivate this metta, you know, why this training is so helpful. So a lot of the the teachings of the Buddha are based in very pragmatic stuff. It's like, what is it that leads to happiness? And what is it that causes suffering? You know, let's try and understand that. Let's try and understand the root cause of that. And let's try and live our life in accordance with that. That will make us happier, more successful, everything. Right? So our usual strategy, based on this overlaid mandala, which we completely believe in every single time, is like, I will be happy when everyone moves from the difficult people into my good friend category. You know, uh, I will be happy when everyone behaves in the way that I like them to. I will be happy when everyone treats me like I am special and nice, right? Uh, and good, and um, when no one treats me badly or ignores me or says things to me I don't want them to say at that exact time, right? <laughs> so it's kind of funny when I say it that way, but that is usually most of our script for happiness. And when someone uh, departs from that script, then we're, you know, underlying that is like, oh, I would be happy if you did not do this, that, and the other, right? So really the problem is you, yeah? <laughs> and it's a moving target who the you is, but it's like constantly that, right? So that would be okay as a strategy of happiness if there was any prayer of it working. <laughs> <laughs> but it really doesn't seem like it will, you know? It really doesn't seem like it will, because this, this strategy is based on us being able to affect everyone else's mind, body, and speech, Right? Like, and it seems like we can hardly even do that on our own. <laughs> so it seems like very unlikely that we're going to be able to orchestrate everyone else's, you know? So this is the story in samsara, as we call it. You know, both people are acting and doing things as they will. The weather is acting as it will. You know, the news, different things are happening as they will. Politicians are doing things, everything's, you know. It's all this stuff happening, and... When our strategy for happiness is like, I want everyone to treat me well and I want everything to be perfect and then I'll be happy. And if anything departs from that, I will be unhappy. Then it's going to be a problem. So even when you look at, you know, inherently, what, what are some things we think will make us happy? So oftentimes it's like, well, when I have this much money, I'll be happy. You know? Or when I achieve this degree or... Uh, when I get this kind of house or uh, when I attain this uh, level of title or something like that. And it's not like there's any problem with attaining any of those things. They can be good things to attain, but you start to notice that there's always something next, isn't it? And I remember this from being a kid. It's like, oh, when I graduate to middle school, when I graduate to high school, when I get to college, when I get to drive, right? When I become this tall, you know? But there's always endless things like that going on. Uh, so there's, 
there's really like no point at which we can just rest in peace and happiness from that. Also, even with all those things, sometimes you get them and sometimes you don't. And sometimes they fall apart. So the teachings of the Buddha is based on actually this truth about our lives and about the world. You know, there's this constant change and flux and insecurity of our material circumstances, of our status, even of our bank account, of the weather, everything. You know. So the question is, is there the possibility of some stability of happiness that is beyond all of these changing circumstances? And if so, where is that to be found? And how do we develop that? How do we find that? And the answer, of course, is that the place to find that is in the mind, in our own mind and heart. In understanding the way that reality gets created, the way that we respond and react to that, in understanding the ways in which we live out of alignment with the truth of the way things are. And then in training the mind to see clearly and to rest in the wholesome states uh, that are a reflection of what's actually true. So I thought I'd tell you a little bit about the origins of the, this uh, practice too. The metta practice. And um, some of you have heard some version of this story, but I'll give you the extended version here. So this is actually a practice the Buddha gave to a group of monastics uh, as a protective practice. So it's also, a, metta is actually a very beautiful protective practice. And, and I think Sally had said in one of the evenings uh, about the many benefits of metta, which include some of them, is like that the devas will look upon you well and the animals will look upon you well and humans and that... You won't be harmed by weapons and poisons and all this stuff, right? So in this story, uh, it goes back to the time of the Buddha, so 2,600 years ago. And at that time, the monastics would go on rains retreat. So during the rainy season, um, they would go off somewhere for a silent retreat, like what you're having here. And they would usually go to the Buddha beforehand and they would get instruction, so specific meditation instruction. Then they would go to some place where there's some trees and also a place where it's possible to go get alms, like they would get fed by uh, offerings of generosity. So this group uh, got instructions, 500 of them, from the Buddha. And then they went off looking for a suitable place. And as they were wandering, found a beautiful hillock at the foothills of the Himalayas, which appeared like a glittering blue quartz crystal was embellished with a cool, dense green forest grove and a stretch of ground strewn with sand. They were captivated by the site, and there were a few villages nearby uh, and places where they could go for alms. So they spent the night and then went for alms and decided they would spend their practice period there. The residents there were overjoyed to see the monastics uh, because uh, they didn't have that many monastics coming through there, and it was actually understood that it was a good opportunity to support people doing spiritual practice. Like this is considered a a beneficial and uh, positive thing to get to be generous. So they were happy about this. And so then they said they would build them little huts for meditation. 
uh, and they gave them a little hut with a cot and a stool and a pot of water and so on. So the monks settled down to uh, meditate and they did this for a couple of days, but it turns out that those trees were also inhabited by some tree deities who at first were like, okay, uh, they stood aside and they were kind of like, okay, the monastics are here, they were being respectful. But then they realized this was going to last for months and months. Mm-hmm. They were less happy about this. So they decided that they needed to chase them out. Uh, so they discussed the situation among themselves and decided to frighten the monastics by showing them terrifying objects, by making dreadful noises, and by creating a sickening stench. <laughs> so they materialized all these terrifying conditions and then it worked because the monastics could not concentrate and got scared and basically ran back to the Buddha, saying, uh, please help us to find a different place to practice. So Buddha kind of glanced around and decided, no, this is the right place for these, these ones to be. This is a good place for them to practice uh, meditation. So he said, no, this is the right place for you to go, so I want you to go back there, but I'm going to teach you this practice, and I want you to do this as you're going through there. I'm going to teach you this, learn this sutta for a theme of meditation as well as a formula for protection. So then he recited to them this metta sutta, this one that we were chanting in the night, and they memorized it. People were good at memorizing things in those days. Uh, mm-hmm. And then they actually went back, 500 of them, to the same spot chanting this and practicing metta in their heart as they went. So as they went thinking and meditating on the underlying meaning, the hearts of these tree deities became so charged with warm feelings of goodwill that they actually completely turned around and received them with great piety and welcomed them to their rooms and supported them in their retreat uh, for the rest of the time. So not only did they support them, but they made sure nobody else bugged them. And so they had perfect silence and every one of the 500 had become an arhat by the end of the practice period. (laughs) Such is the power intrinsic in the Metta Sutta. <laughs> so it's that, you know, as we approach those who cause us harm, actually, you know, with a sense of loving kindness, uh, it does have a transformative possibility, you know. And in something like this, it could seem a little like, you know, fairy tale-ish or something. But I'm sure everyone here has actually had even some small experience like this, right, of some transformative experience. So you can see this in the world in different ways too. So I've been uh, watching some of the uh, World Cup soccer games and um, in some of them there's some fight that happens you know, between people. So in professional soccer there is some famous sort of diving that people do, like someone touches them they very dramatically fall over. Right? So then there's some dispute about like, are you injured? Are you not injured? You know, so in one of these cases I saw, actually, it was, I think it was a U.S.-Ghana um, game, I believe, that one of the players, uh, Ghanaian players had actually tripped the U.S. player, seemingly accidentally, and then, but then as the U.S. player went down, he knocked the Ghanaian player with his leg on the head. Right? And the Ghanaian player was really upset about this. He was really mad about this. And in fact, he kind of straddled the guy on the ground and was like yelling at him, and then trying to get the referee to give him a yellow card and kick him out and all this, right? And it was actually very sweet to see this, uh, this American player who was actually a German-American guy, as many of the t- 
team guys are. And he was acting in this way that I don't usually see American male athletes um, act. Like he was very tender. He started touching the Ghanaian player in this very tender way. Like, you know, here and here. It's like, oh, I didn't mean to hurt you. Are you okay? You know, he was just touching him in this very sweet way. And they went through a few rounds of this where the other player was like, you know, and then he was like, you know, <laughs> and then and the guy was like, and he was, you know, and they went through like three rounds of that, and then it broke, and then they shook hands, and they went on and played. It was like, well, that's so sweet. It was like, it was purely like that, you know, uh, hatred will not be ceased by hatred. Hatred will only be ceased by love, you know. It was like, oh, there's nothing to fight about there. You know, it's like, oh, I didn't mean to do that. I care about you. I convey that through touch. I convey that through words. I'm really sorry, my brother. You know, it was just very sweet. Uh, to, it was sort of on TV to see this, you know, and, and then they went on their way, you know. Or you see this in many different um, other examples where people are, are mad at each other and it's really easy for things to escalate. You know, it's really easy for people to escalate. And then sometimes someone will somehow find it in themselves to not. And it totally changes the dynamic. You know, it can completely shift the human interaction. So that's actually what we're practicing here. You know, it's a power of strength. It's, it's a strength to be able to bring this loving kindness forward like that. And it's a strength to be able to do that in all different circumstances, you know. So like in summer camp, you know, where, say it's soccer camp, you know, you start out like you try and kick the ball on the goal, but nobody is there, right? It's like, okay, let's see if we can do that. Then maybe they'll put up a net and you have to kind of aim for the corners, right? You do that. Then someone will stand in front of you, right? Uh, but they're not moving and you see if you can do that. You know. Then you get in the game and see if you can actually do it. Right? So in some ways here we're doing the same thing. We start where it's easiest. You know, can you sit here where no one is bothering you and connect with a sense of well-wishing, of loving kindness, right? Uh, so no one's yelling at you except in your own mind, right? Uh, and uh, let's, let's practice like that. And we'll practice with the one who is most beloved to us. You know, someone is really easy for us to connect with like that. Then we start to get a little bit harder, a little bit harder, a little harder. You know, go to someone who's a little mixed. We go to someone you don't know. And then finally we approach the difficult person. Right? So I'll tell you another story uh, of this kind of thing, of how meeting someone with metta can be transformative. Uh, so this is a story from uh, StoryCorps, uh, which is a, a thing on uh, like public radio where they you know get people to t- tell different stories. And this is one from uh, a man named Julio Diaz. He's from the Bronx, and he's just telling a story about something that happens in his life one day when he's commuting home uh, from work. So he says, so I get off the train, you know, I'm, I'm walking towards the stairs and this young teenager pulls out a knife and he wants my money. So I just gave him my wallet and I told him, here you go. And he started to leave, but as I was, he was walking away, I said, hey, wait a minute, you forgot something. If you're going to be robbing people all night, you might as well take my coat to keep you warm. So he looked at me like, what's going on here? And he said, why, why are you doing this? And I said, I don't know, man. If you're willing to risk your freedom for a few dollars, then I guess you must really need the money. I mean, all I was going to do was go get dinner. But, you know, if you really want to join me, you're more than welcome, too. And the kid didn't say anything. So he said, look, I'm going to go, and you can follow me if you want. 
so he went to a place where he usually eats and he said, um, I just felt maybe he really needs help. So I went to the diner where I usually eat dinner. We sat in the booth and the manager came by, the dishwashers came by and the waiters came by to say hi. And this kid was like, man, you know everyone in here. Do you own this place? And he said, no, I just eat here a lot. And he said, but you're even nice to the dishwasher. And he said, well, haven't you been taught you should be nice to everybody? And he said, yeah, but I didn't think people actually did that. (laughs) (laughs) So I just asked him in the end, what do you want out of life? And he had almost a sad face on, like he couldn't answer me or he didn't want to. So we finished dinner and the bill came and I looked at him and I said, "Uh, listen, I think you're going to have to pay for this bill because you have all my money. Uh, But if you give me my wallet back, I'll be glad to treat you. (laughs) And he didn't even think about it. He said, okay, here you go. He gave the wallet. And I got my wallet back and I gave him $20 for it. I figured it'll help him. And then when I gave him the $20, I asked him for something in return. And I said, I want your knife. And so he gave it to me. And it's funny, because when I told my mom about what happened, which no mom wants to hear, that you did something like that, she was like, you're the kind of kid, if someone asks you for the time, you would give them your watch. And I don't know, I figure if you treat people right, you can only hope that they'll treat you right. It's as simple as it gets in this complicated world. So this guy is not famous. You know, he's not like Nelson Mandela or Dalai Lama, but he had this radical moment, you know, when something that could have been you are my enemy, you are trying to hurt me and steal from me. Like he responded in this unexpected way, which then completely transformed that dynamic. And it's that kind of response comes from the heart of connection. You know, you can tell in the little things he says, like, oh, maybe this guy needs help. Maybe uh, he doesn't understand about how people can be with each other. Uh, It's actually a beautiful story of friendship in some way. And I would say that in some ways that is also a good translation for metta. So not only is this summer camp of metta or summer camp of love, this is like the summer camp of friendship. So we're learning what it's like to be a true friend. You know, for ourselves, for others. uh, To have those qualities that are important. So to be able to see our real good heart in ourselves and others to be able to have a connection of closeness, of intimacy in some ways, even when there is difficulty, so even when there's something that is hard to see. You're developing a sense of caring. And as we develop this, it's such an important skill to have for one's life, you know, both for yourself and for others. You know, we wish that we could meet someone who would do this for us, oftentimes. You know, we would like to find someone to love us in this way. We would like to be seen in this way. We would like to meet someone who can accept us, including all of our quirks and imperfections and uh, mistakes and unforgivable things. And You've actually met that one, and that one is you. So it's a very profound thing because the more we can develop that quality of metta, this quality of friendliness, you know, both for ourselves, we can also then share that with others in all kinds of circumstances, you know, small, minor ones, big ones, uh, 
And that's how to live a transformed life. So meanwhile, on the way to this, of course, uh, it can seem like hard work. So you might find that you're doing this practice, and in the beginning it can seem like work. You know, you're doing the phrases, and it seems like you're like making license plates and metta. Like, <laughs> may you be happy, working in the mines. May you be well, right? But I can promise you that as you go along, you know, this, this effort, uh, there will be a momentum that can build from this, you know. Uh, every time that you're doing this, that you're cultivating this intention, you're planting the seeds for the possibility of this growing and appearing more often and for it becoming more and more smooth and easy. And then there may be times when it feels like it's flowing quite well. You know, and then actually we think of like, well, what is right effort? It really is just a little bit of effort. You know, it's kind of like if the boat is already launched, you know, then little rowing here, little one here. You, know, you can just be happy, healthy, safe. You know. <laughs> So the main thing is like that stream of metta, you know, that's what we're cultivating. And then whatever it is that's appropriate effort to keep that one going is good. And sometimes it might feel like it just is going on its own, and that's good, right? And then it might go back again to feeling like hard work. Beware, as in all meditation practices, judging your practice of forward, back, up, down, diagonal, anything. Because we don't know. You know, we really don't know. So just with that same patience, that same kind of kindness as much as we can, it's it's really like this devotional practice. And in that way, it it can be such a beautiful thing. You know, it's like devotion to your own heart, to love itself, to this moment, to kindness, to freedom, you know, whatever it is that resonates for you in that. Uh, There can be a very uh, heartfelt and kind of artistic even, passionate quality to our practice. You can fall in love with everything. You know, practice falling in love. Not just with the one beloved who might be here or might be gone or something like that, but practice that quality of in-loveness, you know, connection like that. Yeah, let yourself fall in love with the lizard. <laughs> fall in love with washing your hands fall in love with the wind, fall in love with your body, the breath, fall in love with the imperfections of your toenails, you know, <laughs> like everything, just practice that quality of metta. You know. And as we go along in the retreat, we're going to also uh, instruct you to fill in the in-between times in this way. So what would it be like if I did everything with this quality of love? You know, what would it be like what is it like to go to the bathroom with metta? I don't know. It's just a question for you to experience. You know? <laughs> like, what is that like? Right? Like, what is it like to eat with metta, to brush your teeth with metta? You know? And you can do this you know, using the words for the practice, but also just through experientially trying to live this. So this is such a beautiful week because we get to live this week in as wholehearted a way as we can. You know, and a lot of the conditions of retreat that seem like, ah, oh, how come we have to do this and don't read or don't write or don't do this or don't that, you know, all of it is actually designed to facilitate wholeheartedness. 
which the rest of the world is not designed to facilitate. Yeah. So regardless of like, like what you do for the rest of your life, just try this one week, one week of wholeheartedness as best you can. It's such a beautiful thing, even if there are just moments of that. Yeah. And there's definitely ups and downs. So I was telling my, uh, one of the groups about a friend of mine who got a puppy. She was really excited about the puppy because uh, she was like, I'm going to take the puppy to the park. We're going to go for walks. We're going to play frisbee. You know, excited about walking. But the puppy was very small. And I remember the first time she tried to take the puppy to the park, uh, it actually fell asleep about <laughs> one third of the way. It just pooped out on the ground and just fell completely asleep. And she's trying to pull it and stuff. And it's like nothing doing. It's just asleep, you know. So she just had to wait, you know. She waited, but then the puppy woke up, and then it was like a new day, and then it walked some more, you know. But then it fell asleep again. <laughs> so I think it took three times on the way to the park, the puppy fell asleep, you know. And then she just waited for it, and then, you know. So then each time it would be like, it could go a little bit further, and then it would fall asleep, and then, you know. And then eventually it got bigger, and it could actually make it all the way to the park, and, you know, then... Eventually, it actually got large, and then she couldn't keep up with the dog, you know, just like pulling on the leash and stuff. So this is your mind, too. <laughs> you know, even in one sitting, it's like you're, you're doing it, you're doing it, and then like, gone, out to lunch, right? <laughs> it's okay, you know, this is like the puppy dog fell asleep, right? And then, whatever moment you remember again, all right, I'm in meditation retreat, right? I'm practicing metta, right? Okay. <laughs> It's awake again, ready to go, right? Great, right? Then a little bit later, you might fall asleep again. Literally or actually, right? Uh, it's, it's okay, you know? So if we can regard it with that kind of patience and kindness, you know, training of the mind um, is very helpful. Because really, like, trying to drag the puppy is not helpful, you know, <laughs> trying to force it, you know? Like, all we can do with our effort is just as patiently, as kindly, consistently as possible, you know, connect with this intention of kindness. Or even if kindness sometimes seems too strong, like non-aversion. <laughs> now sometimes things will come up and you're like, I don't want to practice anymore. Or I don't want to do this anymore. I hate these phrases. Right? I'm sick of it. I don't want to go to another sitting. So I recommend with any of these kinds of things that come up during metta retreat, you can basically kind of like Aikido them back into metta by even just kind of talking to yourself in like a metaphor way about what's happening. You know, you're like, oh, look, looks like I, looks like I don't want to go into the meditation hall again. Like, oh, it's hard to have to keep a schedule, isn't it? Like, oh, it's difficult, you know. Like, actually still connecting with the heart, with what's there. Like, oh, may I be free from suffering. May I be well. May I be happy, right? Oh, you're back again, right? <laughs> So in whatever way that you, you can actually recognize, like, oh, this is what's happening. Oh, look at that. Oh, look, I'm falling asleep a lot. Oh, it's hard to not be able to control the energy of the body. Hmm. You know. Even in that, then you develop and continue with that attitude of metta. You know, and then if you can get back with the phrases, which is more conducive to concentration, that's great. But pick up the thread wherever you can. So this is our task here during our summer camp. So practice gently, 
practice wholeheartedly, and actually practice under all different circumstances. Because of course, you know, how hard is it to be full of loving kindness when everything is great? You know, when you feel great and you're well fed and everyone's speaking nicely to you. I mean, it's good. But then what about if everything's not that way? So practice when you're tired. You know, see how that is. Practice when you're hungry. Practice when you're feeling cold. Practice when you're about to go to bed. You know, just continue to cultivate in all of these different circumstances. And that will help you then when you're stuck in traffic in 101. <laughs> that will help you when someone is not being so kind to you. And that will help you in all the different varied circumstances that samsara presents us with. So we're blessed to be here together this week. And we have many days yet to learn, to grow. So much opportunity. So I think we can end with that this evening. We can just sit together for a moment. coming back to our heart. Coming back to the stream of metta. to be a good friend for ourselves and others. May we learn to live wholeheartedly with connection. May we learn to practice under all circumstances. May we uncover the fountain of blessing for ourselves and others, of metta in our hearts. So thank you for your attention. We have Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.